You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Continuing in our foundational learning of what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God. And so last week we explored this term covenant, what it is, why covenant is necessary. Uh, We said that covenant is how God has entered into relationship with his people after an event that we call the fall. The fall we read about in our very first book of the the Bible in chapter 3. And in that story we learn that that a humanity that was made in the image of God rejects God walks away from God, the very author of their purpose and the joy of their life, they have walked away from from him. And that means that the world and its people have become broken and fractured through sin, through our own choosing ourselves over God. And so the result is a broken and fractured world void of, of its true source of design and purpose and a broken world that is full of a broken people who are conditionally in sin, not just behaviorally in sin, but born in sin because they're void of the most satisfying and whole relationship in their lives. They're void of the very being that they were designed to be in relationship with. They are void of the true essence of who they are and why we exist, known through the person of God himself. And so complete and radical, so complete and radical was that fall that it has created an intense vacuum in the heart of all of humanity ever since. It is a condition that is, not unlike, that, is a, that is not different, essentially, than a disease that plagues the whole of the world and its people for, throughout the course of human history. We have a shared story where we are seeking desperately to find what is lost in our lives. And we talked about that story last week and said that there is an element to us that's called a veiled glory, that there's something in us that we know we were made for something more. There's something more about this life, but we're clouded by this idea of brokenness and lacking in our lives, that we can't quite figure out what this missing thing is. And so what that does is it promotes humanity to pursue authenticity to find the authentic truth of their life, only to realize that the only thing that fills that void is a relationship with God himself. And so even despite ourselves, undeserving, responsible for choosing ourselves, God doesn't disown us in our rebellion. Now imagine you have a relationship with somebody that you deeply love, and they reject you. They belittle you in front of your friends. They mock you to your face, not just once, but time and time and time again without fail. You and I, we have limits to our relationship. As virtuous as we might think we are, we have a limit in this flesh to our faithfulness and love. We would walk away from that relationship. But God is unlike us in this, that he doesn't give us what we deserve. 
And so he, plans, he lays out, begins to lay out the plan that he had made from the very beginning of time to bring his creation back into relationship with him. And he does that through the idea of covenant. A covenant is a relationship, it's an agreement between God and man where God himself wills of himself, he commits to himself, of himself, to a people. And he gives to those people a set of promises. He gives to them his presence. He gives to them his favor. And and he gives to them a hope and a future. God pours out himself onto a people. And what does God expect in return from those people? He expects fidelity. Fidelity from his people. To love him, enjoy him more than anything else in their life and in the world. And so in that covenant, God gives us the law. The law is this righteous standard that we are to live by. It is the means in which we are to image God into the world. It is to say, hey, you need to live like this because this this is who I am. And in that covenant, he gives us a priesthood. And the priesthood is those who represent humanity in front of God. We remember that we are broken and in sin. And God, being perfect and holy, cannot be in the presence of sin. And so God appoints priests to mediate on our behalf in front of him. And he instructs his people in that day to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle would have been the very spot where God's presence lived on earth. It was the literal meeting of heaven and earth. And he had the tabernacle so he could meet with the priesthood. He could meet with with his representations of humanity. And then lastly, we talked about that covenant is built on sacrifice. That sin cannot go unpunished. God is perfect in love, but he's also perfect in his justice. And to be in relationship with God himself, he must pour out his wrath on sin that has fractured his creation, that has corrupted his people, that has destroyed the peace in the shalom in the world that he created. And so God creates the sacrificial system to pour out his wrath onto goats and sheep on the blood of another and spare humanity. Why? Because God wants relationship with his people. God wants relationship with his people, and he's spared no expense to make it so. And so this is the old covenant. That's the old covenant, but we learned in this letter to the Hebrews that the old covenant is actually inferior, that there is a new covenant coming through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And his covenant, Christ's covenant, is far superior in virtually every single way than the old one. And we started walking through why his covenant is better and why the terms of his covenants are better. And so we talked about the law, that Jesus fulfills this perfect standard of righteousness for us. He perfectly obeys God's word, and then he takes his perfect life and he transfers it onto us through faith. And last week we said that Jesus is a better priesthood. That Jesus is a better priesthood from the old one. He's better as a representator. I don't even know if that's a word. We'll just say it's a word. Representator for the whole of humanity. Write that down. My wife is probably writing that down somewhere. And we listed several reasons why. Number one is that he's a better priest because he has no beginning or end. He lives forever. Like in this broken world of sin, there is death. That means every one of us 
will die. And that means even the high priest in the priesthood of that day would die, which means that humanity would just ride the wave of good leadership and bad leadership, corrupt character and good character, and all in between. But we know in Jesus that we have the good God himself, incorruptible, unchangeable, as our representator forever. He lives forever without beginning or end. Number two, he said that he comes from a, from a better line of priests. He comes from the order of Melchizedek. It's a wonderful name. The priesthood that we find in our Old Testament, if we look at you know, our Old Testament scripture, is derived or full of men, male descendants from a guy named Aaron, the brother of Moses, from the tribe of Levi. That's where this term Levitical priesthood comes from. The Levitical priesthood was brought in after Moses, under the law, and it was carried out by men, which means that from its inception, it had its own limitations. And so we know that the law is good, but it cannot save us. It can only reveal our sins, which makes the Levitical priesthood problematic from its inception because it can't fix the very burden of our soul. It can only treat the symptoms of our sin. And so Jesus, being of the order of Melchizedek, means he comes outside of the line of Aaron from a priesthood that has reigned forever. And that means that because Jesus is, is coming in as the new high priest, the priesthood changes in virtually every single way. Jesus changes the covenant. He changes the law. He's going to put his stamp on humanity. He's going to make a new covenant. Now, I know that when I say the word new, that we have lots of definitions in our head about that word. The, the idea of new in this world has been a bit lost. I don't know if you remember in the 80s, Coca-Cola came out with a, a new formula, and they called it New Coke. New Coke, and then they rebranded it as Coke 2. All we learned later, right, was all they simply did was add more sugar to the original formula to compete with Pepsi, and they branded it as new. That's what we do in the world. We take things, and we repackage them, and they say, ah, it's new. You should buy it. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what the new covenant is. This is a radically new and different covenant that comes from a different power with a different authority. And that was the third reason why Jesus' priesthood was better. This authority comes from an indestructible life, an indestructible life. The Levitical priesthood's power and authority came through the law. It came through the role that God gave to them. Their authority and power was outside of themselves. But we know that Jesus' own life is a testament to his own power and authority. Jesus lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross. He, he's resurrected from the day. He conquers death. He is the power, which means that this is that Jesus doesn't save the world through better law or policy. He saves the world through himself, that he is the kingdom. He is the power. He is the glory forever. He is authority because his resurrection proves it. He picked up his own life. And so today we're going to read of, of two other ideas that make the priesthood of Jesus better. And then we're going to enter quickly into chapter 8 and understand why the priesthood of Jesus makes this covenant better. And so let's pick up our text today in chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 18, but let's go to the word or the Lord in prayer first. Lord, we come before you and we are just uh, humbly professing, Lord, that we need your word. 
And we need your spirit to make these words come alive in our hearts. We need understanding, Lord. We need knowledge. And so, Spirit, will you move in our lives to increase it? Will you bring conviction through the word in areas we need it? Will you bring joy in our life in areas where we need it? Will you bring faithfulness through your word in our life in the areas that we need it? We love you, Jesus, and we're thankful for this word. And we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. Chapter 7, verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, I can't overestimate to you how absolutely shocking this statement would have been to first century hearers at the time. For the writer to say that the law of Moses was weak and useless would have been the kind of belief and verbiage that it would have gotten people stoned in that day. And I'm not talking about our modern day definition of stoned. We're not talking about hallucinations. We're talking about people picking up rocks to kill you. It is a striking statement that reveals how radically Jesus is going to change this covenant. Now, we remember this, that we're not, we're not speaking negatively of the law. The law is good primarily because it was given to us by God. The law is good because it reveals to us the perfect character of God. The law is good because it made Israel distinct from all the other people in the world. They were set apart through it. The law is good because it reveals the sinfulness of mankind. The law is good because it was the means of forgiveness through the sacrificial system. The law was good because it instructed people on proper worship for God. And it was good because it created boundaries for God's people for better physical and spiritual health. If you've read your Old Testament, you would be surprised with the number of washings that would be required of a Jew in that time. But we remember back in this day that there was no idea of what pathology was. There were no microscopes. There was no idea or understanding of what a germ was. And so these are silly things that we read in our scripture. But we remember this. This is about hygiene. They're cleansing themselves from the outside, and it's symbolic of cleaning themselves on the inside. One of the fascinating stories that I remember is understanding uh, the bubonic plague and its spread, that in Europe, during the time of the bubonic plague, massive people were getting sick, right? Millions of people were, were dying, except for one group. And who was that group? The Israelites. And why weren't they getting sick and dying? Because these these washings, these ritual washings, they were being hygienic. And you know what? The world at the time hated the Israelites. Why? Because they thought they brought the curse onto the world because they weren't dying like they were. And so these ritual washings, as silly as they are, show us a good God who cares for his people. And so we understand that the law is good, but it is true what our writer says, that it is useless and weak, not in itself because it does point to the holiness and the perfection of God, but because of our sin is it weak. And in comparison to Jesus Christ, it is weak and useless. Spurgeon says this. Uh, Spurgeon says, the law is a looking glass, which my lady holds to her face that she may see it See if there be any spot in it. 
but she cannot wash her face with the looking glass. In Christ, we have a better hope. We have a better hope through which we draw near to God. And what is that better hope? Well, it means that we no longer have to try to measure up to the law, hoping that we're good enough, trying to juggle the plates of morality and righteousness, hoping that God is pleased in us. In Christ, the law is satisfied. God's standard of perfect righteousness was lived, and through faith, we live knowing that we will never measure up to the law of God. But we know the one who did. And because of him, and because I know him, and because he knows me, we can draw near the Father. In verse 20, it says this, And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath, without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Jesus didn't become a priest because he was born from the line of Aaron. He didn't become a priest because some people liked him and said, hey, we should vote this guy into office. He became a priest by the decree of the sovereign God of the universe. And so what does that mean for us? What's here right in verse 22. Verse 22 says this, that this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You know, when you go to a large box store, let's say Lowe's, and you make a large purchase, what makes you believe that that store will stand behind their product in case it's defunct, defective, or it breaks without your doing? Is it not their reputation? Is it not their longevity? Is it not their dependability? And so what makes Jesus the guarantor of the better covenant is the one that appoints him, the God of the universe, who is unchangeable, faithful, without flaw, true to his word and his promises. And we're not even yet talking about the perfection of the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Christ Jesus himself. We're talking about the Father, the great initiator. This is being done by him. And we have every hope and right to believe that this covenant will be better and different than the one prior. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercessions for them. So the fourth reason why the priesthood of Jesus is better is this, is that his office is permanent. His office is permanent. Jesus is a priest forever. He is able to save us to the uttermost. Now, there are translations of the Bible that write that at, uh, down as uh, at all times. It is an expansive word. The more our need, the more Jesus proves able to save us. There is not a time, there is not a season, there isn't a second of our life that Jesus Christ is not able to save us. His power to save is limitless. The grace of God extends to you further than you can imagine, deeper than your most outrageous sin that you've committed in your life. Never, ever believe the lie that you are beyond saving. Satan's work is to bring guilt to the uttermost. 
Jesus saves us to the uttermost, and he will save the unsavable. Who is it that he saves? He saves those who draw near to God through him. One of the key responsibilities of a priest in that day would be the atonement of sins for the people, to bring them back into a right relationship with God. And Jesus does this perfectly. We go to God through the person of Jesus. He is our merit. He is our entry fee. He is the one that brings us into the glory of God. And what is he doing there? What is he doing there? It says that he always lives to make intercession for them. I mean, if somebody would look in your life, they would have to look at your life pretty thoroughly and convincingly to make a statement that says he always lives. You know, what would somebody say about us if they said, well, he always lives to what? He always lives to find the best food. He always lives to find the most comfort. What what would they say about us? But what the author is saying here is the truth of Jesus, that he always lives to intercede for us. Jesus is alive in heaven right now at the right hand of the throne of the Father with the very purpose of praying for you and I. There's a theologian from Scotland named Robert McMurray McShane, and he says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Not crazy. Yet distant makes no difference. He is praying for me. Your sin, past, present, and future, is covered because there is a high priest in heaven at this moment that is praying for you, that will never leave you, There is never a moment in your life when you want to come to God that you will not be received and interceded for. The writer goes on in 26 to say, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those uh, those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And this is the last reason why Jesus' priesthood is better, is that he is perfect forever. He is perfect forever. And we're going to talk about some of this terminology when we get into chapter 9. But we have to understand that Jesus Christ is the exact answer for the predicament of our souls. He is such that there is no need for anything else. He perfectly fits our need. What the writer of this letter in Hebrews, and I would argue that every source or epistle and letter in our New Testament, what it reveals to us is that we are a needy people. We are in need of someone to satisfy God's justice for our sins. We need somebody to cleanse our conscience if we're ever going to serve God freely. We need somebody to gain, we need him to gain acceptance before God in our place. We need somebody to able, enable us to, to worship something other than ourselves. We need somebody to equip us for the works of service. We need somebody to comfort us in our trials for perseverance. We need somebody to constantly be intervening for us on our behalf in front of God. We 
need help. We are a needy people. And the point of this passage is that Christ perfectly fits our need in every single way. And there are no substitutes. There are no knockoffs. Only through Christ are we saved. And so he goes on in chapter 8 to begin to help us understand why this priesthood makes a better covenant. So we're going to kind of fly through 8 here um, and pick up chapter 9 next week. And so he, this is Romans, or gosh, Romans has been on my head all day. Hebrews 1 through 4 says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests whom offer gifts according to the law. And so in chapter 9, we're going to take a a closer look at this concept called tabernacle, which is referenced here in chapter 8 by the phrase, the true tent that the Lord has set up. The good news for us in this new, better covenant is that we have a high priest that isn't on earth, but in the very presence of God in the heavenly realms. And that is a far better deal for us than it would have been for those before the days of Jesus. This is what he says about them in verse 5. He says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And so the role of the priest in the earthly tabernacle would be duties full of pictures and symbols that pointed towards the forgiveness of our sins. They were shadows of the real things. Christ came to accomplish the job in reality. He did not deal with pictures and symbols. He was not dealing with shadows. He obtained forgiveness by offering up himself in the presence of God. And we can live with a better hope in light of the fulfillment that Jesus has made available to us. We have a better covenant that's built on somebody who's more excellent as a person, who is better able to mediate for us, and whom gives us better promises. Now, that is an interesting phrase. That's an interesting phrase because it makes us ask, how are the promises of the new covenant different than the old? How are they better than the old? After all, Is not the old covenant built on the same promises of eternal life and relationship with God? And the answer is yes. The promises of the new covenant are better because they're different. They're better because of the manner in which they were given to us. They were given to us by Christ who has done all of the work for us. He has done everything necessary for salvation to save us to the uttermost. And he upholds us through his ministry of prayer. He keeps us by our, his prayers. And to close chapter 8, the writer quotes an excerpt from 
the prophet Jeremiah. And this comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And he does this to say, look, look, the the covenant didn't fail because God failed. The old covenant failed because of us. We are responsible. We sinful humanity are to blame. The weakness and the uselessness of the law in the old covenant was not the covenant itself. It was the weakness and the ability of man. And so in verse 8, he says this in chapter 8. And we'll read this all the way to the end. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so God foretells of this new covenant that would come and replace the old somewhere around 300 B.C. through a prophet named Jeremiah, not because the covenant was bad as it was set up by God, but because the people proved themselves incapable of upholding their end of the bargain. And so what does Jeremiah tell us about the traits of the new covenant? He gives us a few things. The first is this, is that God is going to put the law in our minds and he's going to write it on our hearts. That God is going to take the law, which is holy and good, and instead of it being an external regulation, he is going to create a a way for it to become an internal desire. He's going to write it on our hearts. And that happens through relationship with Jesus Christ. That through Christ, our sins are forgiven. That God dwells with his people through the Holy Spirit. And it is through the Holy Spirit that God is going to take something that once was obeyed by people out of condemnation and fear of that condemnation. He's going to use the Spirit, and He's going to produce obedience that comes from rest and love with a God that saved them and is sufficient. He says this, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each other his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This reveals that in the new covenant, there will be a greater intimacy between God and his people, that God will dwell with his people through the Holy Spirit of God. Spurgeon went on to say this, he says, The best way to make a man keep the law is to make him love the lawgiver. I want to read that again. The best way to make a man keep a law is to make him love the lawgiver. And that is exactly what God has done through the work in the person of Jesus. Jesus embodies and fulfills the law in a way that we see the love of God expressed to us with our own eyes and ears through the actions and the words of Jesus, that he would love us to the extent that he would give up his very life for us. That is a powerful love for us. And it is from that love 
and through his mercy that it says that he will remember our sins no more, that the covering of the blood of Christ saves us to the uttermost. And so the question that we face today isn't one of practicality, but it's one of desire. Like, do we love him? Like, do we love him? Uh, Not for what he might give us or the prosperity he might bring into our life, but for what he has given to us, a better covenant, a better priesthood. Not only do we have to elevate those terms and those ideas in our life over the old covenant, but it means that we have to elevate Jesus as better than our own selves. Do we love Jesus? The old covenant was full of people who sought to look righteous through how they lived. But the new covenant is found on people who are righteous because of how he lived. It is a covenant of rest. It is a covenant of peace. It is a covenant of contentment that is found through the deep joy of knowing Christ himself who holds us and keeps us. We don't have to prove our virtue to one another. We live in light of the virtue of God. And so is he the supreme object of worth and value in our life? Are we awed by his obedience? Are we overjoyed that he is a permanent priest forever? Are we humbled by the way that he is interceding for us in this very moment? Are we content to know that he is perfect for all of our needs? Are we resolved by the fact that he is interceding for us right now? Are we filled with hope because of his new promises? The greatest battle in our life in this world is to distract ourselves from the busyness of our hearts to actually see the sufficiency of God. We are always saying, what's next? Let's do this. What the scripture reveals to us time and time again is that the joy of our life comes with trusting in the faithfulness of God and his promises, not by work, but through rest. Jesus is a better priest who brings us a better covenant. He fulfills the law, and that is for God's glory, but ultimately, it will be for our joy. And we'll visit that more next week.